You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Bible for Normal People podcast. And our topic today is... The Bible as a sacred object, and folks, that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. No, today we're going to have thinker, writer, philosopher Peter Rollins on, and he is going to talk to us about this concept quite a bit, the Bible as sacred object. And really, I think, I don't want to oversimplify, but the way I understand it is that we have this human impulse to create idols out of things, whether that's fame or money or the Bible or even God, maybe. Mm-hmm. that or a way of thinking about God. Right, yeah. that we think is going to solve all of our problems. If we just understood this correctly, or if we had mm. that amount of money, or had that car, or that job. Then we arrive. Then, then we're happy. Then we're complete. Yeah, and, and he's just talking about how Christianity has co-opted that message and promotes it. That if we would just read the Bible, if we would just pray right, then salvation is being saved from, you know, our incompleteness, Mm -hmm. and how maybe Christianity is actually more about helping us undo that idolatry. Mm -hmm. Right. And along the way, you know, Peter's a philosopher. He mentions the names of a few philosophers and thinkers, and uh, it's all great. You can look them up uh, if you want to. It's not super important to to have, you know, a hand on all that stuff to to, um, join us here with the podcast. But uh, just just letting you know, there are a few names that pop up now and then. And one of the things that I really appreciated that he gets into toward the end is talking about doubt and Mm -hmm. its place in the church is something that we've talked about over and over again here. So, and of course, he mentions my favorite philosopher, Kierkegaard, an old friend of mine. He's a 19th century (laughs) Danish philosopher who does a lot of thinking about Christian faith and how it's, in his day, had gotten to be stale and had gotten to be about what we believe in our heads and not what Mm -hmm. we act out. So, he's often called the father of existentialism, about how Christianity is about our existence and how we live our life. So, Peter will mention him and, and a few other philosophers, so I'm excited to talk about the Bible as a sacred object. Okay, let's get to it. We live under the tyranny of happiness, the tyranny of completeness, and everywhere we turn, we have that. Every magazine we open, every movie we watch. I think you're much more likely to experience grace in the pub or at the poker table or in the coffee shop or maybe the confessional, but not necessarily on a Sunday morning. Mm. Um, Grace, of course, being that technology of you don't have to do anything, you're accepted. Mm. You're radically accepted. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. 
Well, hello, Peter. Thanks for being on The Bible for Normal People with us. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Excited to be able to do this. Yeah, and you're right smack in the middle of your tour with Rob Bell, and that sounds like it's going pretty well so far. Yeah, I'm actually mostly at the start of it at the moment. It looks like we'll be um, doing stuff all year. Uh, We've kind of released the first lot of dates, and we'll be hopefully in the next couple of months releasing the second set of dates. So that's been been a blast. Excellent. So yeah, and thank you again for taking time with us. You know, one of the things that we want to just jump right off with here in the beginning is talking some about your background. You don't spend a lot of time with the text per se and a lot of the work you do, but what's your background with the Bible? Sort of how were you raised with it? How were you sort of taught to read it? And then we can talk about how that maybe has shifted as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I came to the Bible late. I came to religion late. Um, I, I grew up in a kind of, I would say, an, a kind of a religious family in terms of confessional faith. My dad has always had a very quiet kind of Anglican faith, but it, but religion, confessional religion never played an important part in my past and in my family. Um, my family were always very much, you know, you, you find your own way, you, you get into whatever you want to get into within reason, obviously. And so it was only when I was 17 years old that I encountered basically the church. And uh, it was through an ev- it was through people doing street evangelism. Um, I, I don't know if there's anybody has ever been converted through street evangelism except for me, but it, it worked. <laughs> um, I, uh, there was a group of people who were doing uh, Jesus dramas on the road and um, singing Jesus songs, and they they created the, the the pagan sandwich. If you know the pagan sandwich, where you have a drama and then there's a group of Christians at the front, and then the pagans come in the middle, and then the group of Christians come in the back, so you can't escape. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then, start kind of engaging you in conversation, um, and that was really my first encounter with uh, Christianity. Really, uh, confessional Christianity. I'd gone to a, a high Anglican church when I was young, but uh, you know, I was not a, I was not an educated or smart young person, and I never thought about what church was. But I, I was very naturally an atheist. Like I, I didn't think anyone believed in God, and for me, the church was a place that that was about maybe morality or it was about kind of a tradition but uh the idea of of christianity is something else you know that was that was a revelation to me so within that then you know how did you get to be familiar with the bible after that was that through some of your your education and things like that no so the first experience was i um so I didn't actually have my conversion on the street, although my friend did. I was with uh, I was with a group of people. We were coming out of a cinema uh, after having just watched Gremlins or Gremlins Two or something, oh. and um, we walked straight into this group. And uh, most of my friends just went off, but me and my friend PK, we both hung around. And he actually he must have had some sort of religious background because he really grasped what they were talking about, and he had this kind of conversion experience there and then, a very charismatic conversion experience. Um, I didn't have that, but I was watching what was going on and was quite intrigued. And then the next week, I went back to the church. And then I had a kind of, I actually also, I mean, I am, I, I'm giving you all of the, uh, like all of the typical evangelical ideas here, because I so they asked to, for people to come to the front of church, and I walked to the front of church. I'm mean, like a walking cliche. And after that experience, I entered into really a charismatic, evangelical, conservative church with a very kind of literal reading of the text. 
um, and a very serious reading. I mean, basically, I started going to the church three, four times a week and doing Bible studies and prayer meetings and leadership groups. And then eventually started taking academic interests. Uh, when I was about 18 years old, I started taking interest in the intellectual life. And uh, I had no qualifications. I'd come out of school with basically nothing. And I, so I had to start from scratch. But I kind of took to it. So I kind of, um, by, the, by 21, I was at university and studying scholastic philosophy. Yeah, as, as most 21-year-olds do. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, start, I, I, I ultimately went into university wanting to uh, back up what I already knew to be true. I mean, I, ha- I knew what the Bible was about. I knew what the truth was. I just needed some evidence to um, support my claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, as a 17-year-old, had discovered everything. And uh, I, I thought philosophy, I'd actually read Francis Schaeffer, and he said, you know, if you want to know what's going on in culture, or what will be going on in culture, he said, you know, kind of read philosophy, because that'll tell you what's going to happen in 50 years or 100 years. So I started studying philosophy, mostly as a way to back up what I already believed, which is what most people do. But thankfully, My, you, you were a good evangelical, weren't you, Peter? Oh, I was, I what was, happened? absolutely. <laughs> well, I had some great um, lecturers, and I was then exposed to such a deep and rich tradition of thought. And I started to realize, oh, I'm not here at university to back up the truth that I already know, but actually I'm here to unlearn. I'm here to critique and question what I think I already know. Um, and that began to kind of open my eyes to, to a lot. And um, I'll, I'll say this, by the way, I mean, I, although I was probably a fundamentalist, I mean that in a, in a positive way, in a sense, like, I, I, yeah, I thought I had the truth. I had this, you know, I was with this, within this community of thoughtful, beautiful people who were helping me read the Bible and think about life. And I, I thought, yeah, this is the truth. But, you know, th- there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like Tillich says that we all start like that. You know, you're in a community, you think you have the truth. The problem comes whenever you encounter someone who thinks differently from yourself. Because then you've got an opportunity to either go, oh, actually, maybe I'm not right. Maybe there's a deeper and different way of understanding things. Or you can put your hands over your ears, go la, 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 not listen, right? And then for Tillich, that's when kind of unhealthy fundamentalism starts. That fundamentalism in, its, in, in the way that we often mean it today is not certainty, it's repressed uncertainty. It's, it's a deep doubt and questioning that you repress and therefore you hide it in a reaction formation, which means that you hide it by doing the opposite, which is showing complete certainty. So when someone's really certain and they're reading all this apologetic work, it's often a hint that they're deeply uncertain. So really, I, I went into university thinking I had all, all the answers, but very quickly and very happily, I was exposed to a much wider world. So say that say a little more about you know the Bible and how it functions that way because you know for me growing up that's what the Bible was meant to do was to provide that certainty and give us all those answers and is that yeah. is that how you have experienced that as well Well you know thankfully it it didn't stick too much to me because because I came into Christianity completely kind of well, not completely, because obviously, you know, you, you grew up in a Western culture. There's, there's certain elements of the Christian tradition that, that are woven throughout our experience. But I came to the whole thing relatively green. 
so whenever I was given the idea that the Bible is, say, for example, a set of beliefs, it's a type of textbook for, for, to help us understand the nature of reality, our position in the world, where we've come from, where we are, where we're going, the nature of being itself, all of that stuff, that didn't resonate with me. I mean, I took it on board because I was young and it's like, okay, that's how you have to think. But it didn't stick with me because my experience of Christianity had been the experience itself, what I'd felt in that week, you know, whenever I met those people on the street, that I really a changed way of interacting with the world. And so something deep inside me, I think, always thought that what if Christianity isn't a worldview and the Bible isn't a textbook, but Christianity in it is there's an invitation to a different form of life. And this Bible is more like a invitation into a different way of being in the world. So although I couldn't have articulated that at the time, I think that that view was there. So once I started to question, it, it didn't take me long to change how I kind of engage with the Bible. Although I'm still a literalist in some ways. Say more about a very that. Different what do you mean? <laughs> well, you know... So in this way, I'm, I'm more conservative than, you know, liberal or whatever, is that if I go to a psychoanalyst and I've had a dream, the psychoanalyst takes the dream literally. Now, they don't question whether, you know, I saw a red bus in my dream. Did I see a red bus in reality? Uh, you know, I was running for it and I was late. They don't ask, well, did that really happen? What they do is they see the dream as an expression of wishes, desires, and fears as really an eruption of the truth within you that you're not able to kind of look at. So what happens is you take the dream absolutely seriously and you ask, what does it mean? What is this telling us about the conflicts in my life and the concerns in my life and maybe the solutions to those concerns? And so in the same way, I, I think that that's a good way to, to approach the text, that the text is an expression of a form of life. It is an expression of something that, you know, it, it means something. And so when I talk about being a literalist, I mean that you simply take it seriously and ask, what does it mean? Now, I don't mean you take it as historically, you know, we've got no access to all of that kind of stuff. But what I mean is that, that I think a theologian's job, and I would say you have to be a literalist with Dante as well. You have to be a literalist if you're, you know, you know studying Shakespeare, but you take it as it is and you try to kind of unearth the the way of life that it is expressing. That's why I'm not a scholar. That's why I kind of, I kind of, anyone who takes a distance to the text, I think you can do that. That's absolutely fine. And I read scholarly works, but for me, it's an existential text that in one sense grabs us subjectively, not everybody. It, only, it, only, it grabs who it grabs. But if it grabs you, then the question is not to take distance from it and to dissect it in that way, but, but to take a more existential approach and to ask, what is this text doing to me and what is it revealing to me? Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of Kierkegaard. I think it's in, for self-examination, maybe. He talks, he has this big rant about, you know, the best way to stay safe is to run into your room, lock the door, get your Bible out, and then immediately get 10 commentaries out as well. <laughs> yes, And absolutely. that's how you can protect yourself from the Word. Yes. I mean, that's why, that's why funnily enough, radical theology, and that's kind of the tradition I'm in, is, is sometimes much closer to confessional conservative theology than to progressive theology and to liberal theology. Because in one sense, the radical theologian is attempting to have the same experience as the conservative, which is 
a conservative Christian is very often, they're having an existential experience with the text. I think that's really, really key. I think the moment, and this is why even I like Karl Barth, and I don't, I don't, like I'm, I'm not a Bardian at all, but I respect him a lot because I see him as having a deep respect for critical theory, but just not having much of an interest in it. <laughs> um, he's more interested in what the text is doing, what it reveals. What strategies do you have where, when you're reading the Bible, right? So I, I really resonate with the existential reading and the participation, but I also want to be wary of uh, certain readings that I feel like maybe disrespect the historical context or can make it mean whatever it, whatever we yes. want it to mean and justify yes. all sorts of things. Are there boundaries to that or how do you see those interacting? Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. And there's a funny book that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, John Caputo edited it. And I think it was called St. Paul Among the Philosophers. And basically what happened is they had a conference where they got all of these continental philosophers who have no interest in the church or anything like that, but who have been reading Paul and writing great books on Paul. And they got them to talk to biblical scholars who knew all, obviously, the history and the geography, the context. And um, it was an experiment in miscommunication. It was very hard for either side to respect the other. You know, like from the, the scholar's perspective, these continental philosophers were just playing fast and loose with Paul. They were like, you know, reading all of this crazy stuff into him and not really respecting the context. And then for the continental philosophers, they were frustrated with the scholars because it was like they weren't seeing the, the political revolutionary uh, event that was in this writing that could, you know, evoke transformation. And if you read the text, I, I mean, I remember reading it before I talked to anybody who'd been at the conference, and I got the impression that this was just two people who were finding it very hard, two groups of people who were finding it very hard to communicate. And so, you know, you, you raise a good point, is that there, there must be some way in which those two positions can enrich each other and can deepen each other. And I think I think that's important. You know, maybe someone like Bultmann. I, I don't read Bultmann that closely, but, you know, he, he was obviously a New Testament scholar, but also very well versed in existential philosophy. And, I, and maybe he's an example of someone who tried to model how the historical and the existential could interact. You could tell me more about that, you guys, probably, than, than, than I would be able to. Well, so... For you, you know, you mentioned taking the Bible seriously. And for some of our listeners, I think for them that because they come out of a tradition where there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the historical context, it was just you read the Bible, it's me and Jesus. And it's about what how it applies to me in my life. I don't really need to understand that context. So when you say that you take the Bible seriously, and ask what does it mean? How are you asking that question? Like, how are you coming to the text to read it as this expression of things? How do you interact with it now? Like what, what role does yeah. it play for you? Yeah, well, and the funny thing is, you know, I still, I interact with it very, very deeply. I'm, I'm, I'm currently, for example, the, um, the, obviously the Bible is written by numerous people. It's, it's a number of books and kind of ultimately brought together by a kind of committee. It's a, it's a very strange book. But I do think that, a certain set of problems are being addressed within this text. There's a certain trajectory to the text. And my work is largely attempting to draw out what that is. And, and I put particular emphasis on 
the opening story of Genesis, the crucifixion and the resurrection as, as, have, as being interconnected and, and telling a story. So, you know, it, it maybe, maybe it would be better to, for me to kind of give a concrete example of how I try to read the text in a serious mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So, for example, you know, I've got an interest in, I, I think like if, if ever there were disciplines that were close to the Bible, I think they are the philosophy of existentialism and psychoanalysis. And they're both traditions that have had a very close connection with the biblical text. So take, for example, in psychoanalysis, there's a, there's a real emphasis on the Oedipus story, where a young guy wants to sleep with his mother, but his father gets in the way. He kills his father to be with his mother. Now, he doesn't know it's his mother, but to be with his mother, he thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster. Now, it's a complicated story uh, in, in, in terms of what Freud does with it. But at a very simple level, you can see the mother as a symbol of the returning to the oceanic experience of oneness. You know, the mother is that thing get back and everything is good. Everything is wonderful. Everything works out. And then the father is a symbol of what gets in the way of you getting what you want. And then when the Oedipus you know, kills his father and gets his mother, that's basically saying that he gets what he wants, whether, you know, you want money or fame or, you know, beauty or to marry a certain person. And that instead of that being wonderful, it's actually a disaster. Um, that, that the thing that we think will make us whole and complete doesn't. And, and so there's this terrible confrontation with reality when we finally fulfill our dreams. You know, anecdotally, you can see this all the time. I have a friend who's now just become a massive Hollywood star. And uh, the moment that he was in his starring role said it was the most depressing day of his life. He was just sitting in his trailer in, in desperation, right? Now, for me, Adam and Eve is, has an eatable structure. So to take the text seriously, and this is actually, you know, not taking it historically, I'm trying to say, is there a universal message in Adam and Eve? And I go, okay, well, here we have an eatable structure. Adam and Eve are walking around the garden. There's a piece of fruit and there's a prohibition. You cannot eat the fruit. And then there's this serpent that's saying, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. And that means you'll be whole and complete. So traditionally, God in confessional circles lacks the lack. God is complete. If, you, if you're like God, you, you're whole and complete. So in psychoanalysis, you have the superego, which is the voice that tells you if you're nicer to your mom, if you have more sex, if you have more money, then everything will be great. It's the voice that's always telling you that you're lacking and that you have to do something. And we think we have to obey the superego voice. But in psychoanalysis, we learn that, no, we have to get rid of it. We have to realize it doesn't have our best interests at heart. In the same way, in the story of Adam and Eve, the serpent just is, is like the, is the superego. It's this voice that's telling you that you're incomplete, that you have to get this thing to be whole. Adam and Eve get it, and it's not a blessing, it's a curse. So for me, the Bible starts off with a universal issue that humans face, something that has been borne out in contemporary kind of understandings of, of subjectivity, which is that we feel a lack in our lives. We think that if we get something, whether it's money or fame or whatever it is, religion or CrossFit, then we'll be whole and complete. And that if we don't get what we want, we're depressed. And if we do get what we want, we're depressed. We're caught in the horns of a dilemma. 
And so right at the beginning of the biblical text, we have an incredible story about what it means to be human. And of course, we all think that we have to obey the serpent. Like most churches are, are satanic in that sense. Most consumerism is satanic in that sense. Any community that's saying you have to do X, Y, or Z, and then you will have completeness and wholeness and happiness is technically the serpent. <laughs> and theology's role is to exorcise the serpent. And that's grace. Grace is the technology of theology. It's the way of saying you don't have to do anything. You are accepted for who you are. Very radical ideas. Mm. So there's one example of how I approach something in the text. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. First, head to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only do this if you like us. If not, go ahead, ignore this message, and, and make baby Jesus cry. See if we care. But secondly, check us out on Patreon patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. There you'll find ways to jump into the community, join that discussion, and offer your support at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks give us a lot of feedback through email, calls, and overall just help make the podcast what it is. So thanks to Matt Sutton, Martin Breithaupt, Megan Clark, Eric Hendricks, Daniel Mosberg, Danny Tanner, Dustin Balcom, Joshua Anthony, Bruce McGuire, and Sherry Jones. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thanks so much. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world 
and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Now back to the podcast. Peter, can I, you mentioned before about how you see the, uh, the beginning story and the Christ story as interconnected. Weave, weave the Jesus story into this assessment of the Adam and Eve story. Yeah, so, you know, if you, if you see the story of Adam and Eve, as, and if you kind of draw a picture of the Garden of Eden, you have the area where Adam and Eve are, you have the area where this tree with this, you know, fruit of, that, that will make you whole and complete is, and then you have a prohibition. Now, you could say that the temple in Jerusalem has the same structure. You have the court of Gentiles, which is where you can come in and hang around. You have the Holy of Holies, and then between the two, you have this massive curtain that, that stands in the way, you know? And we think that if we only could get through to the other side, that's where God is, you know, that's where the sacred is, that's where the answer is. And the radical move within the crucifixion is there's this moment where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a whole pile of interesting things about that phrase. But at this moment of radical doubt, of this moment of radical disconnection with meaning and purpose and the source of all being, the temple curtain rips and we see inside the Holy of Holies and there's nothing there, right? We realize that that God does not exist. So for me, this is the nihilistic heart of Christianity is the moment when we realize that the things that we're striving to get that we think will make us whole and complete, that basically are gods because the world is full of gods that God is not there. And so that for me is the radical moment of the atonement. The atonement is the radical realization that all of the frantic pursuits, the drives that we have to get to something that will fix us is pointless. However, it doesn't end there. You also have the resurrection. And what I try to argue in my book, The Divine Magician, is that in the aftermath of this insight, of this embrace of radical doubt, a deeper understanding of faith emerges, of God not as the sacred object that can help us escape from our suffering, but as the depth dimension in the midst of life that helps us carry our suffering, that takes the sting of death away from us. So in other words, what we find is that God is this kind of object, this sacred fruit, this thing that if only we could grab, everything would be wonderful. Christianity is about the death of that understanding of God and the arrival of a different understanding, which is God is that which is present in love as we engage in the world. So it embraces doubt, complexity, ambiguity. It transcends theism and atheism, the sacred and the secular. Christianity is about a radical embrace of life, an affirmation of the world and the people around us. And actually in that affirmation, that is the affirmation of God which I think, by the way, Bonhoeffer understood at the end of his life. I think Paul Tillich understands this and, and some others. I, and I would tie in, because when you're talking, it also makes me think that, and maybe this is, may take us a while to get there, but I think Paul, you know, St. Paul kind of gets this in some ways oh, yeah. too, where it's funny that we talk about Paul as sort of the one who introduces all these rules and regulations after Jesus sort of has this radical grace message, but I think when we talk about Paul and the law and his idea, like his insight that it's the law that creates the desire, it's the prohibition yeah. 
that creates the desire. And if we get rid of the prohibition, if the law is no longer relevant, then that grace sort of dismantles that whole system. So do you yeah. see Paul in that same trajectory in some sense? Absolutely. This is I think, one of the deep insights of Paul is that he, he sees that the law, which is the prohibition, actually generates our desire to transgress. You know, and of course, the simple example is, well, here's two examples because they're slightly different. One would be if two children are playing and one child has a toy, the other child looks at it and they start to desire the toy because the other person has it. The prohibition is, oh, they're not allowed to play with the toy because the other child has it. So that very prohibition suddenly makes the toy seem magical. It's not just a little, you know, teddy bear. It's like, oh my goodness, if I could play with that, then I'd be happy. The child literally isn't thinking that, but the child is feeling that. And the more their child's not allowed to play with the toy, the more the child might enter into, uh, you know, a tantrum, going like, I just need that toy, I need that toy, until the prohibition's lifted and the kid can have the toy and then very quickly they'll lose interest. The, the other example is where a child has a toy. They just have a regular toy, but then someone takes the toy away from them. And in the process of taking away the toy, the toy becomes magical. It becomes sacred. It becomes something wonderful. In psychoanalysis, one's called castration and the other's called fear of castration. <laughs> so either you don't have the object you want and it's terrible, or as soon as something starts to get taken away from you, the fear of the loss of it makes it seem incredible. And so Paul's answer to this is you abolish the law, not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. That love is something that doesn't put up obstacles. Like, for example, if you love the library system, you don't need to be punished, you know, like with uh, fees for bringing in books late. You're going to bring the book in on time. Your love, in a sense, it's, it's a different form of being in the world that takes away the prohibition and therefore takes away the desire to transgress the prohibition. Maybe one, one, one other example, a true example of someone in therapy, a woman who was sleeping around and she felt really guilty about it, but she thought, well, at least I guilt, feel guilty because that would stop me from sleeping around even more. But as she started to feel less guilt for sleeping around and she worked it through, she's like, who cares what my parents think? Who cares what whatever? If that's what I want to do, that's what I want to do. She discovered that as the guilt began to disappear, so did the desire to do it. That, you know, we think the guilt is what stops us from doing the activity, but the guilt is actually what fuels it. So you get rid of the guilt and then you, you get rid of the activity that the guilt is seemingly holding back. And of course, then the, the woman can decide whether she wants to sleep around or not, but it's no longer this unhealthy kind of drive that's within her. So maybe if you have some thoughts on, you know, a lot of churches maybe don't function that way, either with you know, the sacred object is still very much at play in a lot of churches, meaning here's sort of the, whether it's the Romans road or the three steps to financial freedom or, or whatever trajectory you're on there, still operating with that mechanism at play. And the, then the law idea too, I just know a lot of pastors and, and others who would be kind of cringing at that idea of, oh, no prohibitions, everything would run amok. What do you think is like what's going on inside of us that sort of resists those two ideas or bristles against them? Yeah. And, and for, I would say, by the way, I mean, controversially, I would say that actually, I think the confessional church today in its various forms operates with this mechanism that Paul is critiquing. 
So I think, sadly, for me, the church is basically defends the idea that there is something out there that will make you whole and complete, that you strive towards it. I think secularization of that is capitalism. So it's, it's so embedded. Uh, I, no, I'm not saying every church has it, but I think it's embedded fundamentally, sadly, in the confessional church today. I think you're much more likely to experience grace in the pub or at the poker table or in the coffee shop or maybe the confessional, but not necessarily on a Sunday morning. Mm. Um, grace, of course, being that technology of you don't have to do anything. You're accepted. Mm. You're radically accepted. But here's the issue. My problem is not with the church. I'm not saying, oh, the church is terrible. I'm going like, this is a basic way that all human beings respond. That's, again, why I have a, a slightly more universalistic reading of the text, as in I think it is defining universal problems. Without getting into detail, I would want to argue that it is core to human beings to, as they grew, get caught up in this idea that they have to strive. Right? We are all human beings to some extent, except for maybe psychotics, are, are between who we are and who we'd like to be. And we live between what we have and what we would like to have. So most of us feel that. If I have a friendship with you, I have a friendship not simply with who you are, but also with who you want to be, because it enters the relationship in, in various ways. And most of us are trying to avoid living in the anxiety of that space, the anxiety of, of not being what we would like to be of not having what we would like to have. And there are various people, like LA is the most religious place in the world. Everybody is promising that you can escape that by having enough money, by looking the right way, by you know marrying the right person with the right amount of fame, that you can get rid of the anxiety of living between who you are and who you'd like to be. And so for me, religion at its worst has simply justified that, solidified it, and offered another way of promising salvation from that. But for me, the Bible at its most radical is not promising salvation from anxiety and suffering and difficulty. It is offering salvation within those things. It is not offering us a way out of the grit and grime of the world. It's offering us a way to bear the burden of those things. My issue with the church is not that it's offering a sacred object and saying that, oh, if you say the right prayer, you sing the right songs, everything's going to be good. You can get rid of doubt, uncertainty, meaninglessness, guilt, condemnation, but rather that it's just mimicking and justifying that structure when really its job is to blow it apart, to absolutely destroy that entire way of thinking and being in the world. Yeah, it, it, we have a, you know, I would say a lot of our listeners are kind of in that place with church as a place that they really feel like they are surrounded by a lot of wonderful people. But then there's also this feeling that they're going to be outed for their doubt and their questions about God or the Bible or other things. Do you have any kind of words of wisdom for people who are sitting in a space where they're not sure if owning their doubt is the wisest thing for them to do socially? Yeah. And otherwise, you know, what have you run into with, with folks? Yeah, I mean, and here's the funny irony is, right, is, is that sometimes in many churches, there's nobody to be outed to. So just to clarify, like there, there's a little story from back in Ireland where the British army during the Troubles, they go to Ireland, they go to this small village. And because during the Troubles, the British army had to, they were in Northern Ireland. And there's nothing to do in the little village, but there were loads of pubs. And one night they all went to the pub with this sergeant 
And the sergeant said, listen, let me show you a little trick you can play on the Irish, show you how dumb they are. And he takes out a five-pound note, and he makes it all dirty and crumpled. And then he takes out a one-pound coin, and he shines it up real good. And he puts them both on the table, and he looks around for the drunkest Irish guy. He sees this old guy, Seamus, and he says, Seamus, come here. Seamus comes over, and he says, would you rather have this shiny, bright coin or this crumpled old note? And Seamus, like, he catches the glint in his eye, and he picks it up. He bites the, t- the coin in his one good tooth, and he says, Mr., I'd love the shiny coin. So he takes that, they all laugh, and they play this with some other guys in the bar. Then they leave, and there happens to be an American there. And the American's surprised by all of this, and she goes up to Seamus at the end and says, listen, do you guys not know that the five-pound note is worth five times more than the pound coin? And Seamus says, of course I do, love. But if we took the five-pound note, they'd stop playing the game, right? So in other words, they're playing a game that nobody believes in, but yet the game continues to function. In the same way, in many churches, the pastors, the worship leaders, the people who are leading the church have as much doubt and uncertainty as everybody else. So there's actually nobody who believes that, you know, you know, we all know, for example, a pastor doesn't believe half of what they say. And I'm not talking about Anglican churches. We know they don't believe any of it. But I'm talking about evangelical communities, charismatic communities, where, where the worship leaders are all just hired guns, paid money to come in and play music. We all know they don't really believe. So what weirdly happens is we are enthralled to a, a structure, a religious structure, that actually very few people in the community actually believe in. (laughs) And so what it requires is the courage of some of the people in the pews and some of the leaders to actually call that out. And in calling it out, then a different form of church can arise, a form of church which embraces radical grace. The best example of this is AA. AA is probably, for me, one of the few innovations within the church in the 20th century. And of course, it's not a church but I think it is. In AA, you have the 12 steps, but before the 12 steps, you have step zero. And step zero is you're accepted. You don't have to do anything. You're just accepted for who you are. And and when you're willing and ready, you can be honest with yourself and you can be honest with us. That's what grace is. Now, once you experience that, the 12 steps are ways, are like just kind of little ways that you can, you know, help improve your life, but they will not work until you have experienced that radical acceptance, that idea that, that you're not free to pursue what will make you happy. You're freed from the pursuit of what will make you happy. And that for me is the role of the church. The church is not there to give you freedom to pursue what will make you whole and complete. It is there to free you from the pursuit of what will make you whole and complete. But the irony is, when you're freed from that pursuit, you will find a deeper joy and a deeper experience of life. So, uh, you know, Peter, that's uh, that's very stimulating. And, 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 you know, I think you're hitting a lot of good chords there. I wonder, I mean, I'm putting myself in the place of people listening to what you have to say and wondering, okay, well, what place does, quote, doctrine have, like the creeds of the church and things like that? Do you draw lines around what you would consider to be authentically Christian, or is that not something that interests you? Or how, how does all that, how, how do you move between 
what you're saying and let's call them traditional expressions of the Christian faith, at least in the West. Yeah. Now, I, I want to kind of make a distinction, and it's kind of, you know, one that Kierkegaard makes, although he makes it in a much more pejorative way than I would mean it, between Christianity and Christendom. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what I mean by those terms, it's a little bit different from Kierkegaard, but what I'm saying is like the, the event of Christianity is this freedom from the sacred object is that which will make you whole and complete, the freedom to embrace doubt, complexity, ambiguity, to affirm those things. And that can happen anywhere. As I say, it can happen at the poker table or at the pub, the pool room, the confessional, the coffee shop. But then there is Christianity as its, as its tradition and the, in its doctrine and creeds. And I think that there's, there's something really good about that. So what I would simply want to do is I think it's important for us to understand how to approach doctrine and creeds and the tradition. And this is where I would use Paul Tillich. For Paul Tillich, all of these traditions and creeds are ways in which the community enter into an experience of affirmation of life, the courage to be, he calls it, that transcends those symbols. So it's like, the, the, but, but for Tillich, you cannot speak without a language, of course, for everybody. You have to have ways of thinking about the world. You have to have symbols that help you navigate the world. And the, the Christian church in its traditional guise is a whole set of ways in which we have understood the something which is beyond conception, beyond our ability to speak, something that in philosophy is called the real, which is beyond our ability to conceptualize. And so for Tillich, he goes like, you don't change the doctrines or the creeds or anything like that, but you have to place them in their right position. They are idolatrous if they close things down. They are idolatrous if they become some object that you have to embrace, right? Some thing they, that they, they become fundamentally dangerous and demonic. But if they are icons, as in they, they are these, so an icon is a visible thing that draws you into invisibility. So whenever you love the face of somebody, their visible face opens up to their emotions, to their subjectivity, to all of the stuff that you don't see. When you reduce somebody to their flesh, you kind of make them into an object. But when you love someone, the flesh opens up a whole world that cannot be seen or touched. So that's, now I'm critical of some things in the church, but I'm more, I'm just critical of when doctrines and dogmas are seen as ends in themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually, when I was 17 years old um, or 18, I, I did a very embarrassing thing, but I think even then I kind of understood it. it was, I gave a talk in my church, actually it must have been 20, and I started off with this really boring talk about the Bible. I had it in my hand, and then, you know, typical kind of teenage thing, and I ripped it in half and I threw it across the room. Um, and now this, is, this is a mega church. <laughs> this is a charismatic mega church. And then I gave a talk, which I was happy enough about, but it was kind of a talk about how, you know, we think this text is sacred, the, the paper and the words, but it's how we incarnate it. It's how we enter into the mode of life that it expresses. But anyway, some people weren't happy and they went to see my pastor and he, now he doesn't agree with me at all. In fact, he tweeted me recently saying that although he likes me a lot, he hopes I don't come to Belfast to preach with Rob Bell. <laughs> so he's a, but he's a lovely guy, right? Absolutely lovely guy. And whenever this group complained about me and said, you know, that I shouldn't have done that, I think 
it was actually one of the elders picked up a CD-ROM of the Bible because it was CD-ROMs in those days and giving away my age and snapped it in half and said, well, how do you feel about that? And they were like, well, that's different. And then this guy said, well, I, I think that was the point. Is it, It's not different. So now, in a very crude and silly way, what I was trying to do at that time, which I can articulate hopefully better now, is to say that the text is in insofar as the text draws us into this different form of being in the world, transforms us, it is doing its job. But insofar as it's just something that we hold in our hands and that we, we, treat, we treat the Bible like a, or the heaven, like a, a multiple choice questionnaire, we get the right answers we get in, then we're kind of missing the point. Well, unfortunately, Peter, we're coming to the end of our time here, but I have two questions I want to leave you with. One is, for someone who's unfamiliar with this way of thinking, and maybe their mind's kind of blown and they're back at, you know, 30 minutes ago, still trying to figure out what's going on, what would be the book uh, of yours that you would recommend people turn to first to kind of get a grasp on that? And then secondly, anything else that you want to tell us about in terms of a project you're working on or book you're writing or anything like that? Oh, yeah, thank you. So I guess the book that really sums this up best in my work is my latest book, The Divine Magician. It's where I really try to engage with the biblical text, at least the main points of the biblical text, and draw out this idea that that grace is the freedom from this crazy pursuit. Now, by the way, I understand that this sounds mental. In fact, if I could redo this uh, this podcast, I'd probably tone down the craziness a little bit. But but the craziness is just this. We it's, like craziness, Peter. That's oh, fine. Good. I, well, I hope I hope the people listening will be you know kind enough to uh, listen to me. I, I I appreciate that. I don't deserve to be listened to, probably. But the simple idea here is that in this world that we live in, we're constantly being told that you have to do this, that, the other thing in order to be happy. We live under the tyranny of happiness, the tyranny of completeness, and everywhere we turn. We have that. Every magazine we open, every movie we watch. And for me, the church is a desert in the oasis of life. It is this dry, quiet place where we experience a radical acceptance, a radical grace, the idea that we do not have to strive, that the sacred is in the depth dimension of life itself, that as we love each other, we encounter a reality that otherwise evades us. And the church is, at its best is a place that sensitizes us to this, that draws us into it, like through music and comedy and sermons and all of those things draw us into this world to help humanize us. That's it. It's a, it's a freedom from that. And I, I try to show that all of my books are trying to do that. My very first book was simply trying to show that the mystical tradition in Christianity completely breaks open the idea that we can grasp God that we can have God in our pockets, that we can kind of know the truth and help us embrace doubt, complexity, and ambiguity. All of my work is kind of saying this one thing. And if you understand this, you don't have to buy any of the books. When we start to question our lives, we feel that we're unraveling. We feel that we're being pulled apart and we're terrified. We start to question our political, our religious, and our cultural positions, and it's terrifying. And we try to find ways to shore up our defenses. We read Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, upside down and inside out. We kind of, we get whatever will help us protect us. But actually, what we need to do is go deeper into that place of doubt. 
Just like when you go to an analyst and you go to an analyst saying, listen, there's a big trap door beside me and it's full of monsters and horrible things and I feel like they're going to eat me and they're trying to pull me in and I need you to pull me away from that, that trap door. And of course, what does the analyst do? Well, they push you in. They say, well, that's where you have to go. This is called the dark night of the soul. And what I'm saying is that, that actually we need to go deeper into that space of unraveling and what we'll discover I shouldn't tell you this because, you know, I'm taking away the punchline, the, the adventure that you're going to have, but it doesn't really take it away because you have to still do it. But you'll realize that, that actually you're raveling. Now, raveling means exactly the same as unraveling. Raveling means to pull apart, but it doesn't have that negative un. It's actually something fun and good. You're not unraveling, you're raveling, reveling it. So that, that's all I'm saying is that actually when we enter into that space of questioning and unknowing and when we start to try to find freedom from all of these frenetic pursuits of life and simply learn to be, we are getting to the heart of something profoundly offensive and beautiful that's at the heart of the gospel. Okay, so that's that. And then in terms of what I'm up to, um, this will probably come out when I'm halfway through Atheism for Lent, where... Uh, for 40 days over Lent, instead of giving up chocolate or tiddlywinks, we, um, we give up God. And uh, it's a playful thing because it's more about just engaging with the critiques of Christianity, not to judge them, but to let them judge us. Over 40 days, we get comic books, philosophy arguments, podcasts that help us really experience this space of unknowing so that when we hit that cry on the cross in Easter, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can really feel what that means and then perhaps discover this raveling that is on the other side of unraveling. So if anyone's listening to this, uh, you can still jump in the Atheism for Lent. You can catch up with where we're at and what we've been doing or do it at any time during the year. That's the thing I'm most excited about. Or join me at my festival in Ireland called Wake where we do four days of drinking together and doing music together and thinking together, where we go into these ideas in greater depth. Where can people find more information about these projects? Oh, yeah, just fire on to peterrollins.com. I finally have .com. I used to have .net. Yeah, that's why we didn't invite you earlier is because you were still .net. Um, I know, that's terrible. It was, it was a millstone around my neck. And then some listener listened, a friend of mine, actually a guy I know, he said, I'll buy you .com. And he bought me .com. So there you go. Peter oh, Good friend. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much again, Peter, for being on and introducing us to some new and exciting uh, concepts here. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks thank for having you, me. Peter. Peace. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, if you want to find out more about Peter Rollins, just go to his website, peterrollins.com. A couple of books that he mentioned, his latest one, The Divine Magician, and also How Not to Speak of God. And he also has a Patreon page at patreon.com front slash Peter Rollins. And we mentioned that because that's where he uh, you can get more information in addition to his website on his project, Atheism for Lint. He does a lot under the category of pyrotheology. So he has a bunch of seminars. You can just check that out. Again, patreon.com front slash Peter Rollins. While you're there, if you haven't already, you can also type in patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Again, we thank everyone who's supported us so far and you can look there at all the ways that you can connect with our community and also don't forget about pete's website 
PeteEnds.com, where he blogs a lot about some of the topics we talk about here and other topics about the Bible and faith and doubt and all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Thank you very much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.